This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, uh, Michelle Lamerel, who is uh, a professor of environmental toxicology at UC Davis, where she recently received tenure uh, in July. And um, she is also a WANS awardee from NIHS. Michelle? I'm going to kind of build on what you heard from Dr. Bloomberg. Um, we keep talking about you know, obesity is important. I really uh, like these graphs because I, I think it's important to recognize that this really is a problem going on worldwide. And really, I like to think of obesity as a uh, malnutrition disease, um, which is the way that many people think about it. And you can see from these graphs that both in adults and in children, uh, throughout the world in both developed countries and developing countries have an increase in obesity. And what they're seeing is during the economic transition from being kind of in development to being developed, that there's a, a trend towards going from an undernourished to an overnourished state. And so that the malnourishment really isn't going away. Um, so, okay, why? Why is this happening? We talk about diet, we talk about exercise. We know that, for example, Dr. Woodruff this morning brought up that it's happening too fast to be explained by genetics. So those lines started going up only within one or two human generations, right? And our, we don't evolve quickly enough to have some new genes arise that are conferring this additional risk. So we're really thinking about the environment, right? So what about the environment beyond food and exercise? We've talked about stress quite a bit, and of course, now I would like to talk about exposome. One of the ways that I think about this is I do research where I ask questions about what's going on in humans, and then I try to understand if these associations that we're seeing in humans are really causal by doing things in my lab experimentally. And so one of the things that I've done is worked with this study called the Child Health and Development Study. And so basically, this is a really interesting study where from the late 50s into the mid-60s, basically every woman who arrived at Oakland, California, Kaiser Permanente, who was pregnant and seeking care for their pregnancy was enrolled in this study. So it was originally about 15,000 women and their um, unborn babies. And you can imagine that logistically, it's very difficult to follow all of those people up that are born from this study. But um, I took advantage of the fact that the person who ran this study had a, a grant to look at breast cancer, which I'll touch on again a bit later. And so she had a number of women who were in their 50s that were being tracked, that were born from this study, um, where we could then look at other questions besides breast cancer, at least in these women. And so what we did is we took 500 of these samples that were collected, these blood samples that were collected in the 1960s from these pregnant women, and we measured about two dozen different environmental chemicals in these samples. And I asked the question, are any of these associated, these chemicals associated with obesity in these women who are in their late 40s and 50s? And so what I found among all of them was the pesticide DDT. And so this is a, a picture here 
of uh, Jones Beach in 1942. This was around the time that we started using DDT. And I honestly can't tell you now how many times I've given presentations and had people approach me and tell me that they too played behind the DDT truck. So this is um, a child over there running behind the spray because isn't it fun to run and sprayed water and liquids when it's hot out, yeah? So it was banned in the US in 1972. So you can imagine there's this window of susceptibility that really started in the 40s and maybe ended in 72 for a lot of the people who are at least born in the US where they might have this heightened exposure due to this prenatal, um, or excuse me, heightened risk of obesity due to this prenatal exposure. So probably many of you start thinking about the book Silent Spring when you hear the word DDT. And one of the things that I would like to point out and how I think about uh, Silent Spring is, is today's Silent Spring may be actually migrants. So we've talked about different um, populations that have increased vulnerability today. And one of the things I haven't yet heard brought up is um, migration. But um, often migrants, if, especially if they don't have citizenship yet, are voiceless and so are um, of higher vulnerability. There's also a lot of stress, of course, associated with migration. Why did they leave their country? There's the stress of poverty if they're a poor migrant or if they've come to a place of new opportunity, which of course the US is famous for. They transcend perhaps their social class. It's actually considered very stressful to have class transcendence. And so there's all this layering of um, social dynamics that really haven't been explored yet, but that are kind of embedded in this, what I'm about to tell you. So some of the highest levels of DDT that have been measured recently are actually in South Asians living right here in the US. So through a collaboration I have with a, a UCSF professor and doctor, Dr. Alka Kanya, and then Dr. Martin Smith, we've done this study to look at South Asians who have been in the U.S. for, at times, decades, throughout um, all ages of adults, have an increased risk of obesity, diabetes, and fatty liver. Now, what's really shocking about this is these high levels. What do I mean by that? So the average level that we found in this group is greater than the 95th percentile of what we're seeing in the general US population. So these people have a really high level of these chemical exposures. And we were actually provoked to do this study in part because Dr. Smith and I had participated in a study where we showed that South Asians that had migrated to the city of London in the UK also had excess risk of diabetes. And so this seems to be a phenomenon. And, and so why am I bringing up these migrants? Well, even though we've banned it since 72 in our country and other places, it's not the same, right? So in India, they've been recently manufacturing it. Mexico only banned its use in about 10 years ago, okay? So, so there are silent, vulnerable populations living in our country that represent high exposure levels that we're not really thinking about because of migration. So maybe you're not one of those people and it's not your problem. Well, it turns out that DDT is metabolized into something called DDE. And this concept of silent spring and moving through the food chain is not just isolated to birds and trees and some ecosystem that doesn't relate to you, right? Because we're all living things, we eat living things, right? So it, they bioaccumulate up the food chain and DDE is a more persistent 
chemical, and so it's found ubiquitously in our environment, including in our food. And if you eat animal fat, it's going to be at a higher concentration because these chemicals that linger tend to be fat-soluble and they like to stick around with fat, which means they're in your fat, okay? So the majority of people that get tested in the most recent um, national survey have levels of DDE in their bodies, okay? And they did, uh, we heard a question about regional exposures. In this most recent survey, they found that the levels in the western part of the U.S. were consistently higher than those in the other areas of the U.S. that are part of this national survey. So it's this persistent thing, it's stored in fat, and it seems that it's actually toxic to fat also because there have been about a dozen human studies, mostly in children, showing that across the world, DDE levels are associated with an increased risk of obesity. And at the lunch hour in the Facebook webinar, you're going to hear Dr. Harley speaking. She's involved in this study called Chamacos, which is focused here in the Salinas Valley of California on um, Mexican-American immigrants primarily. And they've shown that prenatal exposure to DDE is associated with increased risk of those children. Um, increased obesity there. And so this is um, also a concern. And we heard in the intro today that it turns out we can um, have this kind of coping strategy where we say, oh, it doesn't matter, we'll just ride it out and pass it on, right? So I'm here to say not really, um, in part because one of the things that's happening with climate change and all of these interfaces of environmental risks that we've been talking about is the distribution of malaria is expected to expand and the severity of the um, infectious ability is expected to expand as well. And although they're working on, for example, um, vaccines for malaria, they're not 100% efficacious. And you're, you're not going to be a parent and say, well, I'm okay with a 20% chance that my child will die from a disease. You're going to have a follow-up. You're not just going to stop at the buck at the vaccines. And so with this spread of malaria, you can imagine DDT is dirt cheap, and it lasts a long time, and it will continue to be used. It's very effective. And lives will be saved in that way. So it's this it's really this trade-off, you know? It'd be great if we had a leapfrog technology in the same way that we brought cell phones to places that never had landline phones so that we could say, okay, well, can we save people from dying from malaria without giving them chronic disease later in life? So one of the things that I mentioned I do is I say, what's going on in the humans? I told you all this stuff about these humans and people all over the place are getting exposed to these legacy chemicals and it seems to be associated with fat. Is that real? Lots of things are out there, right? We've heard about lots of risk factors. And so I bring it into the lab to get at it more specifically and control all the other variables. And so what I've seen is that when I give mice exposure to DDT while they're pregnant, and because they're just like humans in the sense that they can metabolize it to DDE, they're getting that same mixture, um, I find that the mice, when they're adults, also end up with increased fat mass, so they become obese also. And, you know, we talked about, well, what are the risks for obesity? When everyone thinks about it, they generally think about what you eat and how you exercise. So, of course, I had to measure those things to figure it out. But the um, DDT did not make my mice pig out. They just drank the same amount and ate the same amount as all the, all the other mice. So 
Okay, if it's not calories in, then maybe it's how we're burning calories. So let's think about how we burn calories just a bit. Because this is kind of surprising information. We sit around thinking about, oh, let's solve our obesity by exercising more, right? But you can see from this pie chart that only 20% of the calories we're burning each day are burned by physical activity. And even if you're super active, maybe that number goes up to 25. But it's not a dominant way in which we burn calories. The majority of the calories we burn are just to keep us alive, to keep us warm. It's called thermogenesis. There's a reason we call it burning calories. And, and so we looked at this, okay? So there's this thing called indirect calimetry, and you can do it in humans, you can do it in mice, you can do it in anything. And basically what happens is you put them in a gas gas-tight chamber and you measure how much oxygen's going in and how much carbon dioxide's coming out. We all know we breathe oxygen, right? So you can do some math and then come up with an energy expenditure equation and you can see here that the DDT exposed mice, this is six months after they were done being exposed, have a drastically reduced energy expenditure. But it turns out that these mice are not um, lazy either. So they're not picking out and they're not lazy. There's lasers in the cage and we can measure every movement they make and really get a good grasp of that. And that's just not it. So then we had to figure out, well, what's left? It's metabolism. And we, to study that further, we had to figure out what tissue, is it our liver, is it our heart, um, could be the source of this metabolism defect. And we turned to, um, because of striking evidence, this thing called brown fat, which many of you probably have never heard of, but this is the good fat. It's brown because it's full of these organelles called mitochondria that burn calories. That's their job. And this um, picture from CBS in the red um, kind of shows you where it is, but a pretty big depot is right here in your scapular region. And for many years, people thought that this was just um, on our bodies to um, help us get warm when we are born. We first come out of the womb and it's cold and you start screaming because it's so much colder than the womb. You have this huge activation of heat production because now you have to produce heat. People didn't think it was really around in humans until they were doing some cancer imaging studies and saw that all this um, sugar that was being used to detect cancer was going into these same regions where this brown fat was. And they realized, oh, all that sugar is going into those spaces to get burned as calories. And they realized that these, that activity of burning calories is inversely related to people's obesity and also to their diabetes right now. And so this is um, how I think that this DDT phenomena is working. And one of the things I like to think about is analogy, right? So is this, is this true for other things that cause obesity? So I told you about DDT where it seems to be an increasing obesity risk and is impairing our ability to burn calories. Well, um, atypical antipsychotics like clonazepam um, are, are a class of chemicals which are really easy to think about in this way. So we had a question in the last session about, well, how much gain are we talking about here? So um, they did a landmark study where they surveyed something like 24 different studies of people's weight gain after they started taking these drugs. Now, this is a really easy concept to get because they don't have the drug in their body, and then they have it, and the doctors are measuring their body weight, and you can see exactly what's happening. And people gain, like, nine pounds of fat mass and like five to 15 pounds of body mass weight. 
So for like, if you're a 100 pound person, it's reasonable that you would gain 13 extra body pounds from taking these drugs for only like eight to 12 weeks, okay? So when you think of that, it's like, okay, we have this clinical evidence, this is real, okay? And, and those two, there is evidence for a impairment of body temperature maintenance, and you see the same thing with um, a risky gene that's like the most well-known gene for obesity, it's called FTO. So even when we evoke genetics, we get that, okay? So um, I don't have time to go over this slide, but we can talk about it if you like. And I just want to thank you so much for your attention. So um, these toxins are stored in uh, body fat. Do you think when a person loses weight that these toxins could be possibly released and affect their being? I have a, a member who's losing weight finally. She's been you know, hundreds of pounds overweight her entire life. She sleeps all the time. Could it be because of this? So it's a great question. There actually have been maybe, I would say, about three or so studies of this phenomena where looking at what happens to our chemical burden of the chemicals that are stored in our fat during weight loss, um, including bariatric surgery. And what tends to happen is that because there's less fat, it actually releases it into your body. And there is evidence that because it's circulating, um, it's getting to other tissues and potentially able to cause adverse um, effects in that manner. So I think I've seen some evidence suggesting um, thyroid hormones get changed. And thyroid hormone disruption is associated with sleep. So okay. there could be some connections that could be explored in your friend. But after time, what happens in these studies is that... Um, it, it equilibrates again. You know, you lose a lot of weight and everything's in flux and, you know, you're all shaky and then, and then it stabilizes. Your weight, once your weight stabilizes, then a lot of that um, is excreted, but then a lot of it goes back into your fat. And so it's not been studied really well how much is excreted versus how much goes back in your fat versus how much targets other areas in a so, toxic manner. So did I hear you say it's the fat itself or these chemicals that are embedded in the fat? Um, the chemicals in the fat, like, so if you say, okay, these people lost 20 pounds and these people lost 20 pounds, but these ones over here also had chemicals that were higher, that's associated with adverse effects in thyroid in one study. You showed um, weight gain with medication. I know that medication, like weight gain is a common side effect, so how might that play into all of this? Um, so sharing... That is to give you examples of how this problem with calorie burning is not just limited to DDT and its metabolite, but I didn't study any of the medication directly. It's just measured very well because the doctors keep a close eye on people when they start new medications. Yeah, I know. Um, I think that medication like prednisone, so like a steroid, could easily impact weight gain. And, Absolutely. Um, that's very interesting. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.